Let's, uh, let's turn now to um, the book of Mark. I, week in and week out, am kind of retreading and, over, and treading over and over again on us understanding the narrative structures of Mark. And there's a purpose behind that, because I want us to discern, if possible, the purposes of the author. Not just the purposes of the Holy Spirit, but the purposes of John, John Mark, if John Mark's the author, uh, as this was written under Peter's instruction. That's what it seems like is the best theory we have running. It's an ancient theory all the way back to the first century as it was reported to us through Polycarp and others. So uh, we're going to take a look at this, and uh, I just, we're going to ask we're pray we're going to be able to hear well. In fact, that's, let's read here as we... Uh, Let's read how Christ tells us, how does Christ tell us, how does Christ tell us we should listen to his word? I'm just going to dive in this week instead of giving you the usual context. We are at a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment in the, in the narrative, and uh, when... Um, when Peter acknowledges Christ as the Messiah. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Returning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man, a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I want to, I need to, I want to pray for myself and for us. Father, I pray for wisdom to speak, wisdom to, uh, wisdom to um, understand would come to us, all of us together. We'd share in it because your Holy Spirit has opened the text. And uh, as we looked at last week, uh, is removing spiritual blindness from us, uh, giving us new insight into, into the world. Help me, Father, and forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there's so many. And uh, forgive us as, your, as hearers for all the things we haven't applied and don't apply and that uh, sometimes don't understand. Increase our understanding today in this very text uh, and bring us into that process, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Thales was, is, the, is the father of philosophy. Thales, you ever heard Thales? Was it Miletus? Thales, Thales, doesn't matter. And he's very famous. We, we don't have any of his recorded writings, but one of the things he said was, a man never steps into the same river twice. Have you ever heard that before? A man never steps into the same river twice. A man never steps into the same river two times. So one of the, one of the, the, one of the uh, early philosophical problems of Greek philosophy was change versus permanence. And which is, which is more real? Thales was saying change is constant, change is permanent. And this problem back and forth became a, a powerful philosophical problem for the ancient peoples. They were constantly trying, and Plato and Aristotle, this is one of the ways in which they begin dealing, dealing with uh, nature of reality. They're trying to understand what are, what's, what's real, what isn't. And uh, there's, a, there's a certain kind of, one of the problems that, that, that Thales is, is, uh, is dealing with is this idea of process. 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 Let's put this plainly in the text. It's been mysterious since the ancients. Why does it take Christ two steps to heal the blind man? Why? I mean, some interpreters who I don't think, who don't share my conviction that this is truly the Son of God, this is truly a spirit, a divine uh, man, God-man person, say, oh, no, this is a shamanism. It's an ancient shamanism, manipulation of mud for the... I don't, I don't believe that. Other people, though, other very spiritual people who do believe in the supernatural uh, reality of the New Testament say, oh, we have the, they're confused by the change too, though, because if you remember rightly, um, how, many, how many words does it take for Christ to raise the dead? Which admittedly is a taller order than <laughs> restoring blindness. Raising the dead. How, how many words does it take to raise the dead? Dead man Lazarus, for example. In English, it's only three. 
I think in Greek it's like two. Lazarus, come for. That's it. So as a story here, this is part of the story, the story of process, or the spit and the and the and the, and I see tree, I see men like trees walking, the way that the blind man is described is in process. That's to, to a number of ancients, that didn't make any sense because a, a divine person doesn't require process. If he requires process, then he's not divine anymore. He does things instantaneously. This was Augustine's big problem. Augustine didn't believe in six days of creation as 24-hour days because he thought it had to be six instantaneous moments because God doesn't need 24 hours. Completely different problem than we have today when it comes to creation <laughs> and the six days of creation. Completely different problem. But the problem's on the less. It's an ancient problem. What is the process? I want to take us through this text in four different ways. We're going to park over this text for a minute because of the way Christ starts talking. We're not going to get into all the, all the, all the meat of what Christ ta- is talking about uh, in, at the end of the chapter because it's really, oh gosh, it's a whole new world of teaching that opens up right at this point. His teaching changes and it, it gets more intense. But what I want to do is I want to take us through this narrative. First, I'm going to do a narrative analysis, and uh, I think you'll, which I think you'll enjoy, and you'll, it'll, it'll, it'll encourage you about uh, Mark's wisdom. What do I mean? Uh, if, you, if you're reading the text the process of the removal of the blindness in different stages foretells, images, gives, gives narrative structure to what happens in the, next, in the next story. What happens in the next story? Christ begins in a, in a, in a question and answer. It's, it's a, famous, a famous question and answer period in the gospel. And what, what happens? Christ, I'm um, sorry, Peter names him Christ. And Christ is that Christians, where they're christened, and it means Messiah is the one christened one. Get this, though. Get, watch, watch this. What happens right after he sees that Christ is the Christ? What happens right after that? What does Christ call him? Satan. Do you see the, do you see the parallel? He, his blindness has been what? Partially removed spiritually, but still what? Still powerful. He's still, Peter's still in process. And so the unfolding process, the unfolding narrative, and with, a, with a two-step, with, with a two-step, a two-step uh, healing, it creates a, a narrative um, kind of frame. It's a narrative framing of what? Peter's own, Peter's own uh, process. It explains it, and it explains it in, in, in a wonderful way. There's a marriage in, in, the, in the, the way that Mark arranges narrative material is to invite you into understanding that, you see? You see, the story mirrors, the, 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 the healing mirrors the spiritual reality of Christ's own disciples. They see men like trees walking. They see Christ as Christ, but without a cross. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Peter sees, right? He sees Christ, but without a cross. And so the narrative itself, and I, I, you know what I want to encourage you about? It's kind of encouraging to me. 
I'm deeply encouraged when I, find, when I discover and I begin to see and the scriptures open up their riches to us, that this is very well written. This is very well conceived. The author had a lot of intention and a lot of narrative wisdom. And when we read the scriptures well, we, we too can share in that. We, t- we too can learn from it. What's the second, the second way? Uh, and these are going to be broad, these are going to be opening, these are going to be uh, ever-broadening horizons here. What's the next horizon that I want us to look at? An interpretive, an interpretive horizon. So we have a narrative, and I want us to get an interpretive understanding. What I mean by this, this, is, this was really well, I think it was Moises Silva, um, one of the things that, and this happens with who Christ is. Let's put Christ here in the center. It could be Mark 8 as a passage in the center. And one of the things that happens interpretively is we discover, and what Peter experiences is we're part of a spiral. And he called it a hermeneutical spiral. Hermeneutical just means how do you interpret, how do you understand, how do you pull meaning out of the text? And one of the things that Silva, uh, Silva noticed was that people, and you've noticed this in your life, at different points in which you know God, in your experience, your access to the truth of the text, which doesn't change, becomes different. Have you noticed that happened? Have you ever noticed you're going back to a, a maybe a Psalm 23 or some text, and you go back to it, and you go, oh, I, I didn't see that before. Have you ever noticed that? You go a little further, and maybe, maybe some experience happens, so maybe some failure or some success or some good teaching, and you're in a different place with a different pastor, with a different church, with a different certain circumstances, in a different job, in different relationships, and your encounter with the text changes. And this happens to the disciples constantly. Early on, they couldn't understand the parables. As they begin to understand the parables, they don't understand his power. As they don't understand his power, they understand, or they understand he's the Christ, they don't understand he has to suffer and die. When he suffers and dies, they don't quite get it again, or it even happens into the book of Acts. As they understand the truth of the glory of the gospel, of this, of this amazing Son of God uh, thesis that Mark is trying to prove, they, they get into a position where they understand it differently, and they understand that Christ had an intention to reach people, not merely Jews. All that is, the truth of the expanding gospel was always there. It was always there that Christ declared all foods clean, but, but we are in different places. And that's, I, I've, I'm afraid for you, but when the scriptures describe the, the apostles and the disciples and the people of God in different positions around the truth, understanding it differently at different times, I'm encouraged. It makes sense, doesn't it? Of a lot of different, it makes sense of your own journey. And it can also, if, you, if you're wise with it, we're going to unpack this more later. If you're wise with this, you'll begin seeing how different people are at different places. And sometimes what people understand is all they can understand. Have you ever, ever seen that with people? They, they, that's all they're going to get is one particular way of understanding a text or, or the truth of of God's love, or whatever, what have you. The third, the third analysis, as this story of the blindness and Peter's confession are married together, I want to call the existential. Now, as a pastor, I'm 
as a pastor and as a, an evangelist, one of the things I've noticed is people often have this pattern in their lives. When they first hear what I say, this is their first response to the gospel. Huh? <laughs> huh? And then followed by, aha! I see this happening all the time. Um, you could plot, I see how I knew this board was going to get too small. You could plot when people are coming to the cross, they have the huh? They have the huh beforehand. You might be in a huh place right now. I understand some of us might not share the same belief convictions or same passions about what you really believe. And you, some of the, you might be like, huh? Huh? What? Well, this story was meant to encourage you, meant to kind of draw you in. If you don't get it, it's okay. Come on. It's, just, it's kind of gently guiding you, isn't it? Saying, come on. It's all right. The people who preached and died and knew this Savior didn't get it. It's okay. Come on. <laughs> they take you to the cross. And, there, and then there's this, aha. Oh, wow, I get it. Jesus died for me. He died for sinners. He, he, he had a vicarious, substitutionary place on a cross. And he rose from the, oh, my goodness, that was for me? And then a little later, and after you get that, maybe you, you have another aha moment. Sometimes this takes years, by the way. You go, huh? You understand the church. And then you get an aha moment about the church. Wait, Jesus didn't just die for me. He died for all my brothers and sisters for us together. You see, it's another, it's another moment. The moment that happens here in the narrative of the gospel, one of the huh moments is, um, okay, I have Jesus, and I'm really enjoying making a lot of money. I'm really enjoying San Francisco and kayaking every weekend. I'm not picking anybody. Just kind of... And then you have a ha-ha moment about dying to yourself in the midst of prosperity. It's a deep one. And you have it, by the way, these are, this, and this is the existential crisis. Darkness, I don't understand. You know, I heard a preacher talk about Jesus dying for me, and I don't really get how that means anything for my life. And then there's the... Oh my goodness, how did I not see it? And I want you to get used to this. This is, happens a lot in the Gospels, and it's meant to teach you and instruct you and encourage you and to bring you into the Gospel narrative. It's okay when you don't get it. <laughs> and the amount that you get, uh, the amount that you will get at different times, is not even hardly in your control. It's good that you're here, in, you're here this morning, right? It's good that I'm here. It's good we're here together because we need to seek out the things that create and help us through some of the existential crisis. The mountains and valleys. And the fourth part, why is this so hard to understand? It's eternal. See, it, all right, imagine this. Maybe, maybe you don't necessarily agree with my perspective on these things. But if, you're, if you don't, let's say you're a skeptic. Watch me, watch me, watch the problem I have right here. Watch the problem. Watch the problem that is endemic, that is systemic for those who want to talk about these things. How am I going to tell you or explain to you the mystery of an eternal love invading space and time to die? Anybody? 
how am I going to get my head around? How am I going to get my imagination, my conceptual framework, my, my analysis? My, how am I going to get my arms, my, my brain arms <laughs> around this? It's huge. It's, it, it, it's, it, it, it's dealing with meta, meta, the meta-narrative of why galaxies are spinning 10 billion light years away and why I'm standing here. Like, it combines everything. It's just, there's a profound author who, who made a trillion light years wide and then loved you and me. <laughs> no wonder they're in process. No wonder we're in process. The mystery is so weird that Hebrew says Christ learned obedience through his suffering. Even the God-man learns obedience. How much more were you, sister? How much more were you and you might be, brothers? How much more we are in pro- I would like to say and venture to say that if we're not in process, we're not experiencing the eternal because it is constantly going to be messing with us. It's constantly going to, you're constantly in a constant state. If you ever know this God and begin to grasp his love at the cross and to grasp the reality of who he is, you're going, huh? Huh? Oh, oh, what? Oh. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the great mystery of of the eternal things plunging into, plunging into space-time, just like Christ does when he spits rubs it in the man's eyes. <laughs> He's that real savior. These are wonder things, aren't they? Transcendent and imminent. Mm. What are we going to do with it all? What use is it to us? What use is this to us? All right, I have some items for application. And they're not going to fit unless I erase something. First, First, you need, I'm hoping that this will begin now. I want you to begin to track yourself. I don't want you to develop um, metacognition. I know, isn't that neat? Doesn't that make you feel smart? Metacognition. What that means is uh, track yourself on the spiral. Does that make sense? Track yourself. Are you in a huh? Maybe you're in a huh moment, huh? Maybe that's just the moment you're in life. Some of us could be in huh moments for really long periods of time. You know, we're just kind of huh? Like that's just who we are for a long period of time. I'm trying to pick out somebody. Oh, I was going to say shout. It's a perfect description of shout. Huh? <laughs> Will we get, has anybody else been caught in one of these moments for like a year or two? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody to want to raise their hand and fess up to this? Yeah, I mean, it's like, what? You're stunned. Nothing makes sense. Um, What the narrative, what the story is meant to do by explaining Peter and his failure is to say, say, okay, you can track yourself now. Where are you? Do you recognize Christ and with an instinct to worship? Do you? Or is it something blurry? Track that. Because there needs to be progression. Are you in a place where you've fallen away? Are you in a place of discouragement? Are you in a place of a lot of really good things happening and you're not suffering a whole lot? There's different places in the spiral 
where the reality of the cross, where we stand in different places and tracking yourself and understanding that perhaps you're not even a Christian yet, or perhaps you haven't really surrendered. So, or, and this often has to do with recognizing sin. One of the great classic huh, aha moments for most people is wrestling with the fact that they still sin in repetitive ways. Repetitive failures. That's a major, huh? How many of you have done that? Huh? I did that again? Well, there's a big aha moment awaiting you when you grasp that the cross anticipated this struggle. Christ knew you, and Christ loves you. Uh, it's also something, by the way, you can ask other people to help you see. Just help under, invite other people into this, which brings us, bring us on as we go here. Well, some of this will make more sense, I hope. The second thing is, why, why the process? There is a purpose to humble you. Um, obviously, our God does not believe in spiritual microwaves because I'd like, to, I'd like to get him one. Wouldn't it be fun if it was easy? Wouldn't it be nice? to wake up godly one day. I don't think it's going to happen until heaven. It'd be nice just to get a little more godly. Okay, we'll talk about that. But um, hum humbling you. I remember uh, complaining to one of my mentors that uh, I was frustrated. And I said, you know, I, sometimes I can't tell the difference between God humbling me and God humiliating me. Uh, what's the difference, John? It was John, John Smith, some of you know. And I said, uh, what was the difference, John, between God humiliating me and God humbling me? Because I can't tell the difference. And he quickly and wisely said something that I'll never forget. He said, Chris, humility is what God wants to get. And uh, from a proud, a, pride man, a proud man, prideful, just pro I'm as proud, proud, and prideful as the people parading. I am. But that cancer is so profound, he said, humiliation is God's chemotherapy. Unfortunately, it tends to kill the host <laughs> while it's killing the pride. That's what, that's what the radiation does, right? It's, it's slowly killing the person while it's killing their cancer. But God loves you that much, Chris, to hum why process? Why? To teach you dependence, humility. To teach you what, what it means to say is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. I am the chief of sinners, loved by this God. It is to humble us. Third, it's one of the reasons why programs don't work. Now, I'm not saying they don't, they, don't have a, they, don't, they don't work. And I'm saying they don't have some purpose in the kingdom. He, it was, it was funny. I, was in the, I, was, I got a chance to preach at a church in London just a couple years ago. And they were describing something. And this is British versus uh, American English. And they said, we're presenting our, I don't know, I'm not going to try to fake a British accent. I don't think I can do it. <laughs> I'm not going to try. 
We're presenting our discipleship scheme. I was sitting around, what? Well, scheme in, in uh, British English uh, means just program. It doesn't have any negative connotation. It means simply a plan to do something. But in, what does it mean in, what does it mean in, in, in uh, an American English? It means uh, trickery. It means, you know, it means you're going to try to manipulate something and do something negative. And it's so funny to hear them talking about these schemes there. And this is our children's ministry scheme. And this is, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Oh, it just doesn't work. But it betrayed something that I think is pretty powerful. I remember um, I've come across over the years different, different discipleship programs. One was called The Journey. And uh, another one, one uh, different ones, uh, Campus Crusade, Navigators has one. How many of you have been through some sort of discipleship program, uh, this process? And um, the, reason I'm, the reason I'm attacking it right now is not because I don't think there's some value in it. It's because the hope it creates. What's the hope it creates? A shortcut through process. If you just get the program down, it will produce a particular result. And let me exhort you, let me encourage you, let me, let me share what the scriptures are sharing with you. Christ is not tame, and our spirituality doesn't work through man-made processes. <laughs> it just simply doesn't. It's one of the glories about church and communion and preaching of the word. This is not a man-made invention. This was invented by the, by, by the scriptures, and it's a complete... This is actually not supposedly, even according to the world, an ideal way for us to experience transformation for some man to get up here and talk to you for 30 minutes. If you're lucky, it's only 30 minutes. Don't trust. Discipleship programs didn't arise until the 20th century. What did our poor church do for the 1900 years before? How she must have muddled through. It's silly, isn't it? It's a silly idea. I, I'm for discipleship. Don't get, me, don't get me wrong. Vitally, importantly. But beware of what you trust in. I joke a lot about my son Ian, that he's 18 years old and there's no cure. <laughs> well, there is a cure. What is it? Time. <laughs> Time. Four. In light of this, be patient with yourself and others. <clears throat> be patient with yourself and others. Patient, wise, and discerning. Why is this so important? Uh, it gets, gets everything down to, um, you know, I've seen this happen um, where a young man, for example, will want to instruct me about ministry. This happens not too often. You guys haven't done this yet. But let me warn you ahead of time what I might say. I learned it from an old saint who said it. I don't think he ever said it to me. I heard him say it to other people. <clears throat> Steve Brown would say, <clears throat> see if I can do it with my invitation here. Young man, you have not sinned big enough or lived long enough to have an opinion about that. a great line. I have said it to people. You have not sinned big enough or lived long enough to have an opinion about that. 
people, are, people can only hear what they can hear at a particular time. I'm telling you, it's 20, 25 years of ministry. You learn this very, very quickly. Well, I, I don't learn anything quickly. One thing I understand, I, tell, I learn everything slowly. But you do learn it. That certain people just can't plot with you. And when I'm, even when I'm speaking and preaching, I'm trying to, or I'm trying to hit a broad range of different people, people who have known God for a long time and people that don't know him that well. Because it's just, there's so many different people just kind of go, oh, you know, they can't get it all. And a lot of times we're downloading, we, you, know, you know, don't be a versifier, you know. It's, you know, you're like, I got a verse for you, you know. I, I, oh. <laughs> but, and it's funny, it's funny until somebody's dealing with a profound loss and you have your automatic verse answer and as you do it, it just falls apart. And you can see the person's other expressions like, really? Really? God works all things together for good? That's your encouragement? This just hurts. Be patient with yourself and others about where you are and I would say get discerning, get wise. And what will happen is you'll be able to track, even with your kids, as you, as you raise your children, you'll be able to see how they access truth at different times and as you shepherd that progress. Does that make sense? And if you, have, if you have a metacognition about your own process, developing it about other people will encourage you deeply and you'll be able to get wise about how to apply Scripture, how to apply truth, and how to speak it. What is the, what are the Scriptures? What is one of those beautiful Proverbs? All the Proverbs like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word aptly spoken. Five. Why do we know these stories, by the way? Why do we know this story in particular about Peter? Because Peter told us. It is one of the great authenticating marks in the New Testament is that its authors do not glorify themselves. They're not the heroes of their story. They're the idiots. You're, you shouldn't be the hero of your story either. Tell on yourself. Tell on yourself. Uh, I don't think there's anybody here who heard us say this before. I remember I was in seminary, and I was taking evangelism training. And it was the third week. And I had come to Christ when I was eight years old, and I was in my second year of seminary, and I suddenly got imputation of God, Christ's righteousness on us, this idea that God's righteousness gets placed on us. I suddenly saw it. I don't know what. I'm a little embarrassed. I should have gotten it by then. I, I just never saw it. I just never saw it. It never hit it never got there. It never went past the hurdles. It never got through the thickness. It never got through to my heart. This idea that, a wonderful idea that all that God is in his love and righteousness and purity and peace and holiness and beauty was put right into me. I just, I remember the moment I got, I was like, oh my goodness, that's beautiful. It's a little embarrassing. It took me that long to get it. We ought to tell people about the things we didn't get <laughs> and how slow we were to get them. Why? Because Peter tells us why. Because people need to know that they're not alone. You know, one of the, you have a wonderful opportunity. You're missing all these wonderful opportunities to tell people how stupid you are and how stupid you've been. I know you haven't missed many of those opportunities, Brad, but some of us have. It's an opportunity for encouragement, growth, and love. 
Um, six, keep rooting around in the mystery. There's always something new to learn. I mean, until you read your scriptures for the second and third time, I know some of you are working through your first time, until you read it for the second and third time, you suddenly start going, oh my goodness. It's almost mysterious and supernatural. You could be rooting around in a passage, and I mean rooting like, a, like the way a hog does when it's going for roots. You got some hunters, you ever go hunting, hunting hog, and you hear them snorting and moving around inside the bush and trying to get down to the roots. Uh, the way my dog does when he's trying to get down, the dog is staying with us when he tried to get some food that, that my son is in, in, uh, invariably dropped between the cushions. What's the dog trying to do when he's trying to get inside the couch? <laughs> That's supposed to be us with the scripture and the cross and our God. Keep rooting around. You know why? It's there. There's always a new discovery about him, about you, about our lives, and about the world. And it, it, it's a wonderful, it's why, one of the reasons why preaching and teaching and all this thing, it never, it's a wonderful, this, this existential kind of cycle of uh-huh and aha uh-huh happens. I've seen guys in their 60s and 70s who are still, and what that does is when you're living new and living afresh with a discovery about God, a discovery which makes sense if he's eternal, there'd be so much more to discover in the scriptures that there's, it, it, it constantly, new worship comes. New, new, and, and, and I see Christians who think they know something, and if you think you know something, you're kind of, that you're in a big huh place. You're, you're locked for a minute. The minute you think you know something, and uh, that's why so many ministers are so are so awful. Keep running around in the mystery. Um, I wanted to capture something about this, and that this is what evangelism is for me. This is what this whole process of being humbled, understanding it's not programmatic, getting more patient, disclosing my own failure, rooting around in eternal grace. You know what happens? Something really beautiful happens, I think. Um, We become radiant, interesting, compelling, attractive, gospel radiant. We smell good with Jesus. Where we become radiant, We become a people that are literally, because of our lives and the process that God is in with us, and we are in with him, we become magnetic. We become poles of attraction and compelling apology for the presence of an eternal God and his love in Jesus Christ. That's why I'm excited about teaching this. Let's pray. Father, you're good. Your goodness knows no bounds. And we confess we have been in process. Some of us feel like we have been in so much process, we can't can't even see straight. Some of us, the process is stretched out so hard, and we've been in such a place of confusion for so long, we wonder where the next aha moment's going to be. Guide us. We thank you that Peter 
could see for a moment, and then seemed to, it seemed to elude him. And, uh, and Father, we, we know what that's like. We know what that's like, where we, we see it, and it seems to run away as soon as we grasped it. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would have power to encourage us this week. I pray, Father, for all, for all the different situations we're in and then going through and the different places we are. For, I pray for new discovery. I'm going to pray for that right now, that we would have new discovery of your grace. For those who have not yet given their lives to you, there would be new discovery of you, new discovery of your power. And I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. On the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. Beautiful that is. In the same way, he also took a cup of wine, and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Yes, look, look at mystery, look at mystery. Christ has said, this is how tactile I am. This is how real and available I am. Uh, but here in the, in the bread and wine is preached an eternal love and access to an eternal faithfulness and eternal redemption and, 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 and passion. Isn't that sweet? Discovery every week is possible just in the table. I ask all those who, who, are, who are sinners, struggling with sin, and trusting in Christ to come to this table. If you can assent to the Apostles' Creed as we read it together, as your statement of faith, as Christ coming in space and time, as the Son of God, this is your table. There are two, there are two groups, though. I, some of us are skeptics. If you're a skeptic this morning, I want you to watch the table. And as a, as a watcher, as a witness, as somebody watching what we're doing, I want you to be curious and envious that people could say they know God like this. And perhaps someday you will have your aha moment with his grace. I respect that respect for our table and not partaking for those who are skeptics. But and, and so I have kind words for that. I don't have kind words for this next group, though, and, uh, this, and this is part of the gospel. If you think you're a good man, George, you are not worthy to sweep up the crumbs. Mystery of the gospel. People who think they're good are not worthy of our Savior's love. Do you ever wonder why I always say that? I say it so people who don't believe and are watching, people who are skeptics, will understand that Christ and we detest the self-righteousness of, uh, of false belief as much as they do. Makes sense, doesn't it? All right, let's, go, let's, let's do this. We're going to come forward, grab some, grab some bread and some wine, and take it back to our seats. When we're done, we'll eat together, and we'll do the doxology. and the uh, Oh, there's some gluten-free crackers as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Um, and so you get the gluten-free if you prefer that. And let's uh, partake in the table together. Um, and uh, let's do this. You know, I was going to, what we'll do after communion today is, I heard about a church where they, during communion, they pray for the children. We'll bring the children up after communion, bring up your kids, and we'll just pray, pray for blessing over all the children today, okay?
And I want, I want to do that. And uh, I'm not quite sure what it looks like yet, but we're going to do it. All right. So um, please stand. Tell me, Christian, brother, sister, what, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.